Welcome to a new episode in the new season of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we talk with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor about her new book, The Evangelical Imagination. It's a conversation about the stories, images, and metaphors that have shaped evangelical Christians. And whether you consider yourself part of evangelicalism or not, it calls us all to examine what stories and images have shaped and are shaping us. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I recently read an article that identified the school where I teach, Dort University, as, quote, an evangelical college in Sioux City, Iowa. The university is actually about 45 miles, or 72 kilometers, north of Sioux City, and that distance also captures the relationship of our reformed institution and the evangelical movement. We're about an hour north. Still, all things considered, it's not that far away. And so when I read the article, my first thought was, not quite, but close enough. Part of my point here is that understanding and taking responsibility for evangelicalism is a worthwhile project, even for those who might be hesitant to call themselves evangelicals. As my friend Dan Stringer likes to say, evangelicalism is a brand, but it's also a space. We may embrace or reject the brand, but in any case, if we find ourselves in evangelical spaces, or adjacent to them, we should seek to leave them better than we found them. For this, and other reasons, I found Karen Swallow Pryor's new book, Illuminating and Helpful. Dr. Pryor is one of today's leading evangelical writers and commentators, and she argues that there is a shared evangelical imagination, one that shapes the way that Christians perceive the world. As an evangelical herself, she examines why evangelicals love a good conversion story, love the idea of new beginnings, and are attracted to sentimentality. She traces ideas of domesticity, self-improvement, and empire through the Victorian era to the present, calling Christians to examine these images and stories in light of Scripture and the Gospel of Jesus. Regardless of how near or far you might be from Sioux City or from evangelicalism, It is an invitation to examine the images, metaphors, and stories that fill your own imagination, your community, and your cultural experience. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. So I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my guest co-host and fellow theology professor here at Dort, Gail Dornboss, the first person to co-host four times on the In All Things podcast. Gail, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, our featured guest is the distinguished Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She's the award-winning author of numerous books on faith and literature, and her new book, Fresh Off the Press is the one we're discussing today, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Karen, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be with you. So let's start with the title, uh, The Evangelical Imagination. And I wonder if you could talk about the parts of that. Uh, First, imagination, uh, then evangelical, and if we have time, we could talk about the 
so first, could you help us understand uh, what you mean by imagination? How are you using that? And then second, what is the evangelical imagination? Right. So, um, so I'm really talking about um, the concept made famous by Charles Taylor called social imaginaries. Right. Um, and I explain this all in the book because I know you know my target readers are not necessarily scholars of Charles Taylor or know what a social imaginary is. Um, and so, just briefly, he defines it as sort of a collective pool uh, that's part of our community that we've inherited of myths, legends, stories, ideas, visions for the good life that are primarily under the surface. They're, they're there, they're driving us, they're building our expectations and giving us a picture of how things should go. Um, but we don't necessarily know that they're there. Or we aren't talking about them or articulating them. They're not at the cognitive level. Um, but there is a connection, obviously, between the idea of a social imaginary and imagination. And so I do draw that out in the book. You know, we as individuals have imaginations. Uh, we have different ways we think about what the imagination is. And what I try to show is that our own individual imaginations are much more powerful and influential than we tend to think about in mm -hmm. modern day culture. And our individual imaginations are greatly formed by our social imaginaries that we're immersed in. So that's really what I'm talking about. A lot of people see the title of the book and they think, oh, I'm talking about, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the, you know, the imaginative people evangelicals like. And I'm like, well. If only, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If only, yeah. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. They do get, they do get mentioned, but. Um, and so then, of course, with we all know that the word evangelical is controversial, contested, you know, it's being used as a category for polling and surveys and, um, and, and people don't even necessarily use that word to describe themselves or haven't traditionally, they've often, you know, as Christians usually identify um, not only as Christians, but maybe by their denomination, but evangelical has just become a, a big word in the headlines because of the way it's been used around political elections and polling and so forth. But a lot of people don't realize that the word has, you know, the, the movement has been around for 300 years, which I get into in the book. Um, and also, we do have like a really good scholarly definition of it that some people might quibble with and some people might alter a little bit, but that's basically David Bebbington's um, definition called the Bebbington Quadrilateral, which says that evangelicals from, you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century, regardless of, of, time or place or um, denomination are characterized by an emphasis on the conversion experience, an emphasis on the role of Christ's crucifixion in our understanding of the faith, an emphasis on biblical authority in our lives, and uh, an activist spirit. And I, I think that definition still holds. And uh, so I'm really talking about that sort of broad evangelical, largely rooted in you know England and America, because that's my period of study and where it all began. But recognizing fully that you know what what really is evangelicalism now uh, is global, worldwide. We think it's just about Americans, and that's sort of the culture that I'm writing about. But it is so much more than that. Yeah, you have this really wonderful picture in the book where you say something like, "If evangelicalism is a house, the evangelical imagination are the beams, you know, unexamined beams holding up, you know, behind the drywall that you don't really see, but they're they are what holding up." Uh, the building. And you also cite historian Molly Worthen, 
who says that while American evangelicals do not share a single mind, they do share an imagination. And that's where I was sort of getting at the, the evangelical imagination. Um, and um, yeah, is it a singular thing? How do you think about that? And then the other part of the question I have is, it seems like you're, you're interacting in some ways with Mark Knoll's scandal of the evangelical mind. And is this book in some ways a book about the scandal of the evangelical imagination? Hmm. No, it's good questions. And um, I certainly have been greatly influenced by Mark Knoll's book. Um, it's been out a couple of decades now, I guess. And any evangelical, especially any in uh, academics or a university setting has to know and grapple with that book. And um, of course, every, you know, everyone knows he says the scandal is there is no mind, right? And I'm not, so my book, it, it is, it does sort of pick up in that track. But of course, what I'm saying is not that there is no imagination, but the problem is, is that we don't recognize how we all are using our imaginations all the time in the mm -hmm. way that I mean it. And whether it's our individual imaginations or those imaginaries that we've inherited, and we just aren't realizing the power and influence of the imagination. I mean, I draw on that um, famous quote from David Foster Wall, Wall um, David mm -hmm. Foster Wallace's commencement speech. Yeah. You know, everyone's mm -hmm. heard this, like with the fish are swimming around and one fish swims by and and says to the other fish, how's the water? And the other goldfish says, what water? Mm. I mean, that's really how a social imaginary mm. works. We're immersed in it. We, we're so used to it. We don't even know to, what questions to ask. Mm. Um, and so Molly Worthen's book, which I, which I quote at the beginning, is, is, you know, is called Apostles of Reason. And she's talking about the sort of tense, paradoxical relationship that um, evangelicals have had with reason. Um, and because we're children of the enlightenment, but also, you know, you know, we emphasize piety and and the supernatural and and those things, and they don't necessarily go well together. And so it's just kind of a, I think, as at the very end of her book, she makes this comment about almost. It almost seems like it's offhand. Like maybe we should talk about the evangelical imagination. And I read that book, and I said, got to that part at the end, and I said, yeah, let's talk mm. about that. Yeah, uh, I don't know if that's how she meant it, but um, that's what I what I've done here. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, and I'm going to keep us actually on the cover of the book. We've you've done a wonderful job of unpacking the title. But one of the first things that actually struck me beyond the title was the cover and what it looks like. I know that authors don't always have a ton of control over what the cover looks like, but the cover of this book has a lot of clashing colors. It's not overwhelmingly, at least when I saw it, aesthetically beautiful. And it has a picture of sort of a sentimental Jesus in the middle holding a lamb. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about when it went into the process of creating it, what story you hope that it communicates, um, especially because the subtitle of the book is how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. So it struck me that there might be something significant about the image that was created for the cover. Yeah, the cover communicates kind of a crisis, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, it struck yeah. me that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had so many people either sheepishly or rudely ask me on social media, is the cover supposed to be kitschy? Uh, like, like <laughs> sheepishly because they were afraid to hurt my feelings <laughs> and rudely because they were just, you know, like, if it wasn't, then no. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so. <laughs> 
I actually, I, I, in two chapters, I talk about um, the middle mid 20th century painter, Walter Solomon, who's we would, if you don't know the name, you definitely know some of the paintings that he painted. Mm-hmm. His most famous one is called the head of Christ. And it's a you know profile picture of the head of Christ with Jesus, with the long flowing sort of golden Brown hair. Um, and I, I talk a lot about the process and how that, that picture was reproduced in so many different ways and just became part of everyday American evangelicals lives. Um, but it's a very, it's not only a historically inaccurate picture of Jesus, which paint, you know, art doesn't have to be realistic. It doesn't have to, but it, it does present itself as being Mm -hmm. realistic and historic. And so it can distort our imaginations because people look at it and say, oh, this this is a picture of Jesus. This must be Mm -hmm. what he looked like. And if we think that's what Jesus looked like, there are all kinds of things that go along with that. Um, Race, ethnicity, beauty. You know, he he looks like a Hollywood star from the 40s in that picture, which is absolutely not who and what Jesus was. So I wanted that picture on the cover. Uh, but the the copyright holder for mm. Salman's mm. artwork is very, very strict. And so we weren't granted permission. Um, but I write about him there. And so I found another painting a little bit earlier, one in 19th century, one by a German painter, also famous of Jesus, as you said, Jesus, the shepherd, surrounded in, you know, golden light, mm-hmm. very white and um, sentimental looking uh, and so that one is in the public domain. So that's that's the one that we used. It was my vision to have one of these sentimental white Jesus images on the cover because there's so much that I, it represents so much of what I say in the book, but so much that I'm saying is contributed to the cult, to, to the crisis. And then the publisher came up with like the thought balloon, mm-hmm. um, which I, you know, I, I think is brilliant. It also, I mean, it's not a beautiful, it's not supposed to be a beautiful cover, but it is very eye-catching and different. And so I think that's I, that's important because there are just so many books that come out. Like you, you, this one will catch your eye and you'll never forget it. Um, I did have a, a, a close friend uh, that I don't talk to, you know, very often. He did reach out to me with some concern because he knows that aesthetics matter to me. He's <laughs> studied under me and he just said, what happened? Like, how could you <laughs> let this cover? And I'm like, friend friend it's ironic he's like oh so okay (laughs) yeah so one more thing on the cover um or maybe the subtitle we did read the whole book and i'll yeah we promise we we will get to that there's so much to unpack here um when you mention here in the subtitle a culture in crisis and i'm really interested in the relationship of theology and culture and on page 128, so to show that uh, we did get that far, um, <laughs> there is a quote that I found really fascinating. You say, it might even be fair to say that evangelicalism, because it arose as a response to cultural forces more than doctrinal ones, has always reflected cultural currents, whatever they may be. And I found that really diagnostically helpful. Um, of course, all theologies are situated by culture. There's that mm-hmm. wonderful phrase from Andrew Walls, the gospel is prisoner and liberator of culture. But is there a cultural captivity that's unique to evangelicalism that is connected to the largely good desire to engage the culture? Yeah, no, I I'm, I love this question. And I do think so. And there are probably people out there who are more studied in church history and theology than I am. I'm, a, I'm just a literature professor. So 
<laughs> um, I'm just coming at this from a sideways angle. But, ha- you know, because my period of specialty is 18th and 19th century England, which is the time when the evangelical revival took place, you know, I've, I have observed and, 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 and because I also, like all professors, teach a whole range of literature, not outside my specialty, I teach all of British mm-hmm. literature. And so this is sort of the, the snapshot that I will give. Okay, so evangelicalism really began in England, even though the Great Awakening took place around the same time. It, the beginning was with the Wesleys in England in the early 18th century. Now, remember that England like other European countries, had a Reformation back, you know, in the 16th century. But England's Reformation was far less about doctrine and theology and then more about, you know, who gets to marry, divorce who and marry someone else, right? So so the, the break from the Roman church in England was not as sharp and clear and distinct as it was in other places. And so from the beginning of the English Reformation and the establishment of the Church of England on, there was always this movement of Puritans wanting to further purify the church from its, you know, Roman influences. And so you have that, and then you have this Church of England, which sees itself as kind of the via media, the middle way between the two. And so the evangelical revival really emerged from a place of Wesley and others seeing that you know a nominal kind of they as they saw it a nominal Christianity had taken hold, you know if what you know basically if you were born in England you were a, a Christian and a member of the church you were born a citizen and a church person, um, and so they renewed this emphasis on individual conversion on being born again that's that's you know one of the defining qualities of evangelicalism, but all of this even the Reformation itself the Protestant Reformation, are all tied into modernity, right? You can't really separate the way the Reformation happened with the printing press and the spread of literacy um, from the modern turn to the subject, Um, the turn away from sort of objective external authority toward internal agency and subjectivity, which is what a lot of what the Protestant Reformation did maybe or was about inadvertently very much was what the Enlightenment about, is about. And evangelicalism is just kind of the child, the offspring of the, of, of the Enlightenment, of modernity. And so in that way, it's, it is very much a culture, a product of the culture of everything that modernity is with its emphasis on the individual, its emphasis on experience, a new experience, its emphasis on subjectivity, uh, which translates into like that personal relationship. I mean, a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, I believe is like, that's the beginning of Christianity, that that's central. Yet, Personal experience also is very important to modern subjectivity and individual expressivism. So it's it's almost as though it's almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to separate out evangelicalism from the modern culture in which it was created and born. Yeah, it's a, I really love that answer in some ways because uh, many of the listeners of our podcast, we sort of draw from this Dutch reform tradition. And so um, some of the listeners might consider themselves reformed before evangelical or not evangelical at all or evangelical adjacent. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense sometimes when we talk about these topics on the podcast 
uh, that it's it's like we're talking about someone else's problems almost, mm-hmm. um, or at least an adjacent wing of Christianity. Uh, and yet, in the answer that you gave, it, you sort of show that from the Protestant Reformation, we've been implicated in a lot of these modern imaginaries. Uh, so within our tradition, both the piety as well as the desire to transform culture very much tracks mm-hmm. with with many of the things that you're saying, regardless of whether or not a person may consider themselves. Uh, whether they subscribe to the brand evangelical mm-hmm, or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful from both of you. And I'm thinking as we talk about this turn to subjectivity and the ways that it's influenced uh, Christian movements broadly, but even back to your book, one of the things I noticed about your book as I was reading through it was that it actually follows sort of a shape of an evangelical imagination from moving from the interior life where you unpack awakening and conversion to the exterior life where you explore art and the domestic life, the church, ideas of social improvement and empire. And so I'm wondering, as you were writing, was that an intentional shaping as you sort of thought about the ways that this book would strike and shape readers and how you went about the craft of putting together these various movements, because you even acknowledge in your introduction and early chapters, you're not covering every part of the evangelical imagination. In fact, you're hoping that people will take this and investigate their own imagination. So I'm just wondering how you hoped the craft of your writing would strike readers. Hmm. No, thanks for asking that question. The order of the chapters is very intentional. And in some places, it was more obvious what the order should be than others. Um, but like the first three chapters, they they very much follow like the pattern of an individual believer who has the awakening and then has the conversion, then tells the testimony, uh, and then gets sort of immersed into evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it grows more toward the crisis in that respect, too. And so I was very intentional. You know, some of the middle chapters, I suppose, pose, you know, they relate to one another and could have been in a different order. But um, yeah, it was it, it I, I did try to create that order in a way that readers could kind of go along and 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 that I it would replicate perhaps some of their experience if they're evangelicals. Yeah, so part of uh you as you just said, you start with sort of the conversion experience and uh you know that this idea of being born again, which you know, sometimes is what evangelicals are called, born agains mm-hmm. or people who have had a born again experience has been one of the most dominant images and identifiers of evangelical Christians even though it's only in one passage of scripture. So I wonder if you could say more about that. It's it's fascinating the way that particular metaphors in scripture mm-hmm. have a greater purchase on people's imaginations and the way we we describe ourselves. And so I wonder if you could just say a bit more about the metaphor of being born again. Mm. Yeah, that's I mean, that was a fun part to write because um because it's about language, right? And and it's a, a, about the way that certain Phrases and metaphors can become stale or cliche, but this is also a phrase that comes from the Bible. And as I say, you, you know, we can't like right. say, oh, we are not going to use this because we just, it's become stale or cliche, but it's really our fault if it's become stale or cliche or overused or distorted. Uh, and of course, um, as I show in the history, the, you know, born again became a, a big term in the 70s and 80s. And uh, especially when Jimmy Carter um, said that he was born again, then it just became part of the vernacular. But also, I mean, people who weren't born again were interested and curious that this leading figure was using that phrase. Um, 
But as as you said, it's only used once, and it's and I think it's a powerful resonant phrase. I mean, I, it's just so filled with so many um, ideas that follow from it. Because if it's a, at birth, like what happens before birth, and what is the meaning of birth, you know, and and um, but there are other ways that the that the New Testament talks about this conversion experience, and I talk about that a little bit, and and one that I lead to toward the end of the book, which was actually, I think I'd heard it before, um, so it wasn't entirely new to me, but I'd never really studied it and thought about it, and that is that the first believers called themselves followers of the way, um, and that, as a metaphor, says mm. so much different, because to be born is like something that happens once, but to follow a way is a daily minute by minute lifetime process of following and not just following you know a road or path but actually following a manner of living a way of living mm. um and if we use that metaphor more i just think we would have such a different understanding and application and way of living out our faith we would think less of it as being a one time thing well it got that checked that box checked off i can move on with the other things i'm concerned about if if we understood the christian life to be one of following away and i don't think anyone would disagree with it but what this is the whole point of the book is like that's not the metaphor that's sort of underneath the surface driving us very much um but it could be yeah it's really fascinating after reading this it, it got me to thinking about how that metaphor is connected in fact to many of our founding stories our sense of the place where where we are, the idea of the new world, though it wasn't really the new world, the virgin land. Uh, and then even the line from Hamilton, in New York, you can be a new man. And this mm. sort of American imaginary of reinventing yourself or rebranding yourself or being able to continually sort of mm. almost give birth to yourself again and again and again, and how that, uh, in many ways, it explains why it's so powerful when you preach a gospel of a new beginning um, mm. But as you just said, the new beginnings can obscure the daily discipleship. There's something about those, as you point out, those conversion stories are so exciting to hear, but the daily fight against laziness, you know, mm. and, and and sloth and, you know, all those other things, you know, that are, are not as exciting to, to talk about when it comes to real discipleship. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I do. I love those connections you make with the different ways we talk about the importance of newness, the new world, the virgin land of being a new man. Um, because this is actually, this is what modern means. Like what is modern is of the times implicit in any, any time we use the word modern means of the moment. And so that's the difference between pre-modern and modernity is like, there's this like of the moment, something mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. Um, and in pre-modern times, people just didn't think about what was new. Um, you know, if you if your gener if your if your family had for all its thousands of gener years of generations had done the same work, lived in the same place, inhabited the same sort of cycle and land, you wouldn't be thinking about what's new and improved. I have a whole chapter on mm-hmm. on improvement mm-hmm. in the book. Um, so this is another thing that's just part of what it means to be a modern, is to value the new um, and the new and improved, um, you know, the great. Uh, and, you know, we don't even realize that, that that's not how people thought all the time. Yeah, I really appreciated and loved your chapter on testimony 
And the kinds of testimonies, I mean, I'm I'm a theologian. I love to think about what we're doing at church and how it shapes us and how the stories we tell really shape the way we think faith should be, as well as sort of this tied to the reality that as we use the metaphor born again, it often even leads into a particular understanding of what Christianity will look like when it goes external, sort of that shape that you give to your book. Um, And as you do all of those things, you enter into investigation, which is what this book is all about, about sort of those implicit ways in which we understand what it means to be a Christian. um, And those are shaped by all sorts of things. And you invite people into examining those things. And as I was sort of grappling with this book and enjoying the examination, I was struck when you wrote the phrase or identified examination as an act of love. And how many people today seem to be thinking that if uh, examination isn't really an act of love, it's an act of destroying. Um, So I would love to kind of hear you reflect a little bit as you invite readers into this kind of examination What advice do you have to them from your own work of how did you maintain it as an act of love and not just a work of criticism or deconstruction? And what what can we do in terms of telling the difference of love versus just sheer criticism and deconstructing? I love this question so much. Um, thank you for asking it. And um, I, I, there, I think there are just so many ways to think about this. And I don't even remember. I think there's a foot. I, I think there's a footnote somewhere. I got that expression. I don't even remember where. But it's just like a few words that are just so full of of meaning. I think and and potential thoughts. So that word exam. When we talk about examining something. The word examine can mean so many different things. We can think of like dissecting a bug or an animal, you know, on the on the board. Mm-hmm. And like that's obviously very destructive. Uh, and that's that. So we might think of examination or we think of cross-examination and we think of that as something negative and maybe even violating. But if you think of um, if a four-year-old comes to you with a drawing that they have made of your family and shows it to you, you, what you examine it, you say, Oh, look, there's grandpa with his gray hair. And there's dad with, you know, with his apron on. I mean, you just you don't just say, Oh, thank you. And, and you you examine it as as an act of love. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go to a museum to um, look at paintings, you, whether we know anything about art and art history or we don't, we're there to love them and as best we can. And we examine them. We look at them. We don't just stroll around quickly um, as fast as we can. That's not, we, there would be no point in going to a museum. Um, and so that's the kind of examination that I'm talking about. The ex- examination of our of our own faith, our own beliefs, our own assumptions, not in a way that you know, that fatally dissects them or brutalizes them, but that, that asks questions about, you know, why do we believe this? You know, is, is it true? Is there a better understanding of this? And we can do that for ourselves and with one another. Um, what could be more important than to examine the things, the thing that is most important to us, which is our, our religious belief and the way those beliefs um, tie together our relationships and the way we understand how we're to live in the world? You know, they, they must be examined and, that, and, and it must be done in love. Hmm. Yeah, part of that is also paying attention to the things that are not the way that we wish they were, perhaps. Um, and one of the more trenchant chapters in the book is on empire. 
And as you mentioned, you sort of start with conversion and then by, you know, chapter eight or so we've built an empire, you know, and then get raptured in chapter 10. Um, <laughs> Solve all the problems. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, and you write there about how the spirit of imperialism, which is also connected to the modern world, attends the growth of evangelicalism. There's a quote you have here, conquering lands is not the only way to build an empire. Uh, you also have a section entitled D.L. Moody is a whole mood, which I loved. Uh, and here Moody is emblematic of the marriage of a corporate mentality and conservative religion. You note that it was Moody who shifted the fashion among pastors from clerical dress to business attire. Um, and so I'm asking this both as a person who graduated from Moody two decades mm -hmm. ago, but also someone who is now in a theological tradition that really emphasizes the importance of building faithful institutions. So how do we know when institution building, which is sort of natural, a thing that we do as humans, has become empire building? How do we distinguish uh, between those two things? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and and like you, I, I believe in institutions. Um, I think institutions can do so much good, so much more good together than um, apart. And yet institutions are so, because they um, aggregate so much power and influence and money. Um, obviously, all those things can be used um, for bad as well as for good. So I, I can only answer that question just sort of drawing on my own experiences. And I, and I really was, you know, in writing this book, um, I know I'm writing a lot of things that are old news to other people that other people have seen all along and that are new to me, but I, I'm trying to model for my readers, like this is what it looks like for me to start to interrogate some of mm -hmm. my own blind spots and underlying assumptions. That's what I'm doing. And that's what we all need to do. And maybe there will be different things. So so there are people, for example, who, who you know, long knew that Ronald Reagan gave his, you know, evil empire speech before the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and, but that was new to me. I just I was like, wow, wow, I, nobody told me that. I did not know, see how closely connected um, the political discourse was with the evangelical discourse, just using that one example. I think, um, well, I'll just draw on the title of, a, of um, I think, hopefully I'll get it right, of a friend of mine. She wrote, you know, how much is a girl worth, a little girl or a little girl worth? And and talking, this is Rachel Den Hollander talking mm. about her own experience as um, a sexual abuse survivor, you know, under the authority of a of her state university or a state university. When institutions decide that the institution is worth more than a than a single soul and a single life, then. That, that, that's definitely when a line has mm. been crossed. And I've just, you know, I have seen too much of that. And, and, and so often it can take so relatively little to make something a lot more right. Maybe you can't, re, you know, erase the past, but there is just so much uh, pre attempt to preserve reputation, name, flawlessness, all the money or that that soul you know souls do get crushed and lost mm -hmm. and that's when when an empire goes wrong um when one soul is crying out please just do this one thing to help make things right and they are met with silence or gaslighting or worse then that's when the empire has gone or the institution has gone wrong i mm. think thank you yeah thank you very much for that and I think it's hard to transition from 
that conversation. But there's there's something important, I think, to thinking through what does it look like then as we recognize these metaphors and stories and the power that they have in our lives, to think about what that then means for teaching the Bible and teaching theology. This is somewhat of a selfish question, again, sort of as somebody who spends their life in the church and teaching the Bible. Um, But as I read through your book, I think it was so powerful to me to think about the ways in which, you know, biblical ideas, theological truths, how those are really being received within a matrix of our imaginations. And what does that mean for us as teachers or even students of scripture to become more an adept and aware of those complex ways that were shaped? How should it matter in the lives of you know, people who are teaching or reading scripture on an everyday basis so that we don't get wrapped up into these misunderstandings of what it might mean to build an empire or poor ways of building institutions where institutional protection becomes more important than individual souls. Hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, for we all know we learn in community, right? We, we, we learn, we read, we interpret in community. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But that's what makes it all the more important to be hearing voices and perspectives from other communities, because it is so easy for a community to kind of get a tunnel vision, you know, led by the rudder of whatever direction the wind has blown when they formed. Um, and it can just take one sort of little different differing perspective. Um, you know, an example I give in the book comes from uh, a friend of mine, Joash Thomas, who who talks about you know, how, you know, he's his people and his ancestors going way back are from India. Um, and just, you know, we, we have said so often as sort of white American evangelicals, um, it's just sort of accepted by many of us that, you know, we brought the gospel to places like this. And he's like, no, 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 no. My ancestors were some of the first believers in the world. Um, uh, and it's so easy to tell us the wrong stories or tell us a story that's just slightly off. And the only way we correct that um, is to listen to the stories of other people. Now, I'm not saying as much as I love stories and literature, I'm not saying every story is true just because someone says it or believes it. I mean, obviously, there's objective truth. But when someone tells us the same, you know, talks about the same set of facts from their perspective, uh, from their understanding, then we have a greater picture Full, more a fuller picture of how things really are, and so I mean, it's it's very basic. It's not a magical thing, but we just need to listen to people outside of our direct experience and communities, and uh, so that we can have more of the truth and have a fuller understanding of it. And it's, we're living in a world where it's harder and harder to do that for many reasons, despite the fact that we live in this global world, this global village. Um, so we have to be more intentional about it. So one of our previous podcast guests, Dan Stringer, has made this, what to me has been a really helpful distinction between evangelicalism as a brand and evangelicalism as a space. And he sort of says that if it's just a brand, then yeah, maybe we don't, we can take it back, you know, to the store and and find another brand, you know, but if it's a space, then we have to recognize our responsibility for those of us who inhabit evangelical spaces to care for those who are within it, to leave it better than we found it. And I take what you're trying to do in this book as, in in many ways, inviting us to consider the ways we have been formed and 
inviting us to tell a better story or to think about what it would mean to paint better pictures uh, than the ones that hold us captive. And so what would you say to those who are listening or who will read the book and maybe you're feeling some despair, which maybe all of us feel to some degree at the state of things. Um, and as we seek to leave it better than we found it, um, maybe not to fix everything, uh, but to, yeah, to, to do something to contribute to the adding of, of some beauty um, in, in overly kitched or sentimentalized imaginations. Wow. That, there was so much there. So good. I mean, I think that the, the, the framework that your friend Dan Stringer provided that first, you know, evangelical evangelicalism as a brand versus a space is really, really helpful. Like I think, I think that opens up so much. And so I think anybody who is concerned about what's going on, whether that's someone who is angry and hurt and has been, you know, um, oppressed or abused by evangelicals and is wanting to leave or has left. I mean, I include them Mm. And I include those like myself, who, as you described, I, I'm here. I, I want to work toward a better future. I think that's a fair question for us to all ask. Are we talking about a brand or are we talking about a space and the people who inhabit it? Um, so we need to answer that question honestly. And, and I don't blame the person who says it's just a brand because that is all I've seen of it. And maybe they need to walk away um, and that, that I, I'm very sorry and I wish that it w- were not that way. But I respect that that's all that they have seen. Um, and those of us who see it as a space, I think it's also helpful for us to say, okay, it, it is that to us, but in some ways it has become a brand. So let's again, so I'm saying let's apply the same kind of discernment and disentangling process that I'm asking for in this book between these two categories, because I think that they are both true. Um, and, and they can be true. They can be true of anything, right? I mean, they're, you know, sports teams, they're a team yep. sports team and they're a brand. I mean, that, that's all I've got on sports, but I think, I think, I think those categories just work so well for so many things that can, you know, can be healthy and unhealthy and good and bad. And so, um, and for those, you know, who are in the space and trying to make the space better, I, I guess I just want to say, you know, we need to help and support one another and those outside of it who don't care or used to care and can't care anymore. Um, let us do some of the caring for you. Um, and hopefully we'll, hopefully we will make it better. I don't, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I think I, I'm no, I think one of the signs of hope I found in the book is at the end in your, in your chapter on rapture. And I'm wondering if, that was an intentional choice of the way that you end the book. Um, if you want to give it away to the readers, <laughs> I found deeply hopeful. And the way in which you draw on John Donne's poetry to talk about rapture in Christ. Um, and, and I found it a very, like, I found it a surprise and very hopeful. Oh, no, that's helpful to hear because when we were talking about the order of the chapters, I originally, when I mapped this out, I really thought, I mean, logically, I couldn't even envision it any other way. Reformation was going to be the last chapter because I'm kind of calling for a new Reformation. So it makes sense that would be the last chapter. But one of my friends who actually the only friend I have who read each chapter through and was sort of my my reader throughout the process. He really urged me to for for some different reasons I think, but he urged me to flip the the order and to end with rapture. But even at that point, I hadn't 
finish writing the rapture chapter. So I didn't know how it was going to end either. But as I made that decision, okay, which chapter is going to be last and then decide, okay, it will be rapture. Then the end that I have, which, you know, just to give it away briefly, it's, it's, you know, it's not like a mic drop or anything. It's just, it, it is about Jesus. <laughs> it's like that. He, Jesus is the answer. Um, very unoriginal, uh, but that's all I've got. It just made sense that that's the answer. That's the end. And so I was happy with the order of the chapters, the way they ended up and reordering them is what actually in the, you know, the drafting process is actually what helped me to arrive at what really the only answer is. And it's mm -hmm. Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm. The book is The Evangelical Imagination. We hope we've given you a bit of a taste of it here. D.L. Moody is a whole mood, things like that. Yeah, the the subtitles in this book are, yeah, they're great. phenomenal. They are worth, <laughs> worth the cost of admission. Um, Billy Graham rules. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the book is The Evangelical Imagination. Our guest has been Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. I would know you in the darkest darkest Your slopes and shapes, your neck and neck In the slow sound of your steady breath Things you love Don't
Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. Original music on this episode was provided by The Ruralists. The feature song, this episode is their song, Disappear, off the album Trying. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks again for tuning in.